Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Today, we sit down with some sonifications of our choosing and some special guests and bring them together in a way actually you might expect because <laughs> we're talking about sonification. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Will Saunders. I'm officially a fifth-year PhD student at Boston University, where I study the upper atmospheres of Uranus and Neptune. You're ready to say it now, huh? Because the first years have arrived to campus. Nice. Or at least one of them. <laughs> nice. I'm Sabrina Berger. I'm a graduate student at McGill University, where I am technically a second-year PhD student, but a fourth year if you're coming from the U.S., and I study novel ways to calibrate radio telescopes. And I'm Alex Galliano. I'm going into the fifth year of the PhD program at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, and I study explosive transients and the host galaxies that they come from. You're listening to Episode 60, An Ear for Instruction, Sonification Part 2. Part 2, the sequel! The sequels are never as good, so we'll hope this one is... <laughs> oh, no. This is going to be like The Godfather. This one's going to be better. This one is better. Okay. So about a year ago, summer 2021, we did our first full episode on sonification. We talked about the basics of how it works, how it's used in astronomy, and how we learn how to perform sonification ourselves. And we wrote an astrobite about it. One of the big takeaways for me from that episode was coming up with the framework of the three eyes of sonification, inclusion, inspiration, and innovation. And in fact, in today's episode, we're going to add a fourth eye that is inspired by the amazing interview you're going to hear. And then after that, we're going to have a follow-up interview with a special guest who's going to talk about the role that sonification plays in her life. We'll have a little bit of a discussion there. And then we're going to teach and learn using sonification amongst ourselves. So stick around. It's going to be a jam-packed episode full of fun. But before we get to all that, let's summarize. Alex, do you want to recap how sonification is used for inclusion? Sure. By inclusion in general, I tend to think of making space for people. It is probably no surprise that people learn in many different ways. And setting aside for a second that they're learners with visual impairments or learners who may be blind, people just learn in many different ways regardless of where they come from. So people can be more visual learners or maybe they're more auditory learners and making space for all of those different types of people means exploring what you're trying to teach in many different ways. And astronomy, no surprise, is a very visually dominated field. And so making space for the more auditory learners would mean making astronomical data and lesson plans accessible through sound mm. and that's one of the ways that we use sonification awesome finally should have always been that way i guess definitely agree and sabrina could you define how sonification is used for inspiration yeah sonifications used for inspiration are the most common sonifications people tend to come across they're designed to impress anyone with awe and beauty you know 
listening to astronomy in your ears, like a beautiful song or something. Um, it gives you an audio version of the experience of looking at a beautiful telescope image. But like you'll hear about more later in the episode, it doesn't really convey a lot of information mm -hmm. and can be super confusing to the listener. <laughs> Take, for example, all the Astro Sound Bites episodes we've had to guess the sonifications for, and I at least seem to get them wrong pretty frequently. <laughs> I know Alex and Will are a bit better, Kirsten seems pretty good, but... I'm learning, and I'm really excited to share my sonification today because I feel like it takes a bit of a different approach rather than trying to be inspirational and beautiful, trying to actually display my data in a way that you can hear rather than see. That's wonderful. And that brings us to the third I, which is innovation. And innovation in the sonification sense is when researchers use sound to actually do their research. A great example of this is Gary Foran, who we spoke with last year, and he explained how the ear is sensitive to faster changes than the eye, so you can actually use the ear to pick up things like variables where your eye might miss it. And he's talked about how that's used in a number of major research works and how he uses tools to help him do his research. And now we're going to take a listen to this interview I'm really excited to present. And this inspired us to add the fourth eye that you'll hear about in just a few minutes and really shape the entire theme of this episode. In this interview, I sat down with the creators of a new sonification project called Sensing the Dynamic Universe. And I wanted to understand what they've produced, why, and how. So take a listen. I'm Paul Green. He, him, his. I work at the Center for Astrophysics, Harvard and Smithsonian in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I'm an astrophysicist working on the Chandra X-ray Observatory and my own science projects. Hi, I'm Afra Ashraf and I'm a recent Barnard College graduate and current intern at the Harvard Center for Astrophysics. And I study brown dwarf atmospheres and also work on sonification project. Well, Paul and Afra, I'm really excited to have you joining me today. And first of all, congratulations on the recent successful launch of your sonification project, Sensing the Dynamic Universe. I know this has been a long time coming, and it's a great milestone. So I figure a great place to start. Tell us a little bit about SDU. What sorts of sonifications will people find on the website? The project is designed to teach people about all the different kinds of variables and transient objects in the night sky. There are many different kinds, so we, we have them sort of categorized into different types, like pulsating stars or uh, erupting uh, novae and supernovae or quasars or rotating stars with spots. There's a lot of different examples and we try to explain each one at the level that could be understood by somebody say high school and up and then we also provide uh, sonified light curves and spectra for each example too so that you can both see and hear the data. Exactly and to add on to that we are sonifying time series data, which is why we're focusing on variables. In particular, in sound is a time series phenomenon. So we are sonifying things where it's easy to hear 
a very one-to-one relationship between the sound and the data itself. Excellent. So in the name of the website, the dynamic is the variables. That's right, because people often say that time domain astronomy, as we call it, in other words, the study of stars and galaxies and quasars, the study of celestial objects over time, is a a branch of astronomy that is just exploding. There's Mm. so many surveys now that are basically making movies of the sky. They cover large areas of sky with uh, imaging telescopes, and they make those images repeatedly, which makes a movie of the sky. So what those movies of the sky provide uh, are the ability to find objects that are varying. And in fact, um, most objects in the sky don't. Our sun, for example, seen from a distance, uh, would appear to burn very steadily and constantly. And most stars are like that. Uh, Only about 1% of objects in the sky are variable, but they provide a window onto all kinds of exotic and interesting physics. And that's why these surveys are being done. These movies of the sky are being made, is to find these objects. When I think about variables, I tend to think about things that change periodically and typically short periods that we can detect a number of the, the periods rather easily. But can you also consider variables to be things that change on really long timescales, maybe so long that they're not periodic, perhaps? Definitely. A non-periodic variable example would be a supernova. Mm. It's a one-time occurrence. To us, we define variable as not necessarily periodic, but anything that varies, whether it varies in a repeating way, a gravitational wave, any sort of collision, any change in the sky is what we're sonifying. That's right. That's really interesting. I, I'm i actually kind of surprised then that only 1% of the sky is variable because I guess I would have thought if it's such a broad category, it would have included more things. Hmm. Well, since there's billions of objects out there, uh, there's still plenty of variables to look at and right. plenty of different kinds of variables too. One example of an object that varies on really long timescales and not periodically are the quasars, right? Quasars are basically the cores of galaxies that have supermassive black holes in them. And as those supermassive black holes pull in gas and dust from the galaxy, they heat up and radiate brighter. Uh, and that radiation can change. And, it, and the brightness of quasars changes on very long timescales. They can change on timescales as short as, let's say, a month. But the longer you wait, actually, the more likely they are to show large changes. Sometimes they get slowly brighter over the course of a decade, for instance, or possibly more. Mm. We don't even know yet because we haven't done the surveys that last 100 years yet. Right. Of course. I want to go back to something, Paul, you mentioned a few minutes ago, which is that Sensing the Dynamic Universe is designed to be accessible to high school students and up. How do you make sonifications accessible to people with very limited astronomy experience? The explanations are geared to um, avoid too much technical jargon. And if there is jargon that we need to use, we make sure that it's uh, explained in our glossary, which is part of the website. 
But the videos, the sonified videos themselves, I think um, are quite accessible almost almost no matter what your your level of education is because they're canned. We, we made them easy to use. You just go and you push the button and you watch as um, a red line moves across the graph and then you listen uh, to the sound of the data. For instance, the uh, brightness or magnitude of an object as it varies. You're not just presented with data and jargon as you would find in an astro paper. You're given things in a simple to understand and hopefully fun way to read. And of course, these sonifications in this project is designed to be accessible to those without vision. So how did you design the website and make sure that people from astronomers all the way down to generally interested members of the public who do not have sight would be able to interact with it? We wanted to make sure that our website was accessible to everyone, even those with visual impairments. So in order to really verify that our site was accessible, since both of us are sighted people, we sought feedback from blind and visually impaired high schools, from blind astronomers. For example, Gary Foran, Wanda Diaz-Merced, who are blind astronomers that regularly use sonification in their work. As well, we've been in touch with blind and visually impaired high school science teachers who have given our website to their students to look over and review and provide any feedback. And that feedback we've incorporated into our website. Wow. And we're continuously looking for feedback as well. That is so wonderful. We have to thank our um, primary web designer also, Karen Phillips, who has been super helpful and has made sure to check and to test all of the basic accessibility guidelines for web pages in terms of uh, navigability and accessibility. So there's a variety of accessibility options as well for people who, let's say, may not be blind but may have some visual impairment. They can change Mm -hmm. the background color. They can change the font size and the font type and things like that. And especially more complicated web design that looks very professional and official and is really beautifully done can sometimes be really hard to navigate using voice readers. And we, our goal for the website was first and foremost accessibility. So we wanted the layout to be simple, clean, and easy to read. I really did enjoy exploring the website. I think you guys did a great job in the design. It is very easy to follow. So, Afra, I want to follow up on something you mentioned at the start today, which is that you design these sonifications to be easy to hear, and it's one-dimensional data. So tell us a little bit about how you made these sonifications. The sonifications were made using Sono Uno. They were made by, the majority of them were made by Joe Palmo, who was the previous intern on the Sensing Dynamic Universe project. Mm -hmm. And Sono Uno is a sonification software designed for data such as this, which is two-dimensional. And you input the data, and for light curves, for example, the x-axis is time and the y-axis is flux. And the sonification software is able to transform this data into sound varying in pitch based on flux or magnitude. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, Paul, if you have anything to add on Sano Uno in particular. Yeah, Sano Uno is uh, publicly available software on, on GitHub that people who are software savvy can run themselves on data if they wish to. It'll accept any sort of two-column data file. In our case, uh, when we sonify a light curve, we have a data file typically that the first column is days and the second column is magnitude or brightness. And so that is directly turned into a sonified video using Sono Uno. We also thought it would be interesting and useful to sonify spectra of all the objects that we have on the uh, website. To my knowledge, I haven't seen that very much, uh, sonified videos of spectra. So right. it enables you to actually see and hear basically the color of an object, which corresponds usually to its temperature, like hotter objects being bluer. And you also can hear the absorption or emission lines of certain elements in the periodic table that are found in the atmosphere or the outer layers of that celestial object. So for each kind of variable, we provide a sonified light curve, but also a sonified spectrum. A lot of astronomical sonifications that have been done so far have been more focused on creating these very orchestral celestial compositions. And we've really tried to make them as simple as possible so that our intended audience, high school and up, can engage with them and can feel a personal relationship to the data. Like they're hearing it and interpreting it themselves. A lot of the sonifications that are out there are uh, sonifications of images of beautiful objects in the sky. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, it's actually really hard to do that in a, in a way that makes sense to the brain in sound. Because at the bottom of the image uh, might be bright and red, whereas the top of the image might be fainter and blue. And yet you have to somehow try to convey that all at once. And so the sonification of images has often been impressionistic. It sounds like a symphony, or it sounds like a combination of many different sounds all at once. And it's often quite beautiful and inspiring, but it's hard to come up with a mental picture, if you're just listening to that, of what the picture looks like. In our case, we're just working with a simple two-column data file, in other words, brightness versus time, or brightness versus wavelength in the case of spectra. And uh, so there's a direct one-to-one -one mathematical relationship of the sound to the data. And we have uh, made a point of making uh, easily available pre-made, ready-to-eat videos here. But again, people can also, if they're adventurous and savvy with software, they can, they can try it themselves with Sono Uno. It definitely sounds like something I should try, but I, I really like this point you're making about where SDU fits into the landscape of sonification. And certainly I've come across and we've played on Astro Soundbites many, many sonifications that sound great and give you an impression, but don't actually convey the real information of seeing an image or seeing a light curve. And in last year's sonification episode, we talked about how 
sonifications can often fall into one of three categories, or sometimes two of three, inspiration, innovation, and inclusion, where that's sort of the goal. And it seems like SDU more falls in the inclusion category. But I was curious to see, do you think that analysis is correct? I feel like it is. I would go a a little bit beyond inclusion to instruction. Mm. Because also, if you get experience listening to these light curves and to these spectra, um, you start to get a feel for what different variables are like. And you could easily imagine a citizen science kind of project, which uh, I might hope to be involved with sometime in the future, where the light curves and or the spectra of thousands and thousands of objects could be made available on the web. And citizen scientists who are interested in the variable sky and in classifying different kinds of variables and transients could listen to these light curves and these spectra and and actually say, oh, that's a Cepheid star. Oh, that's a supernova. Oh, that sounds like a quasar. I love this idea, a fourth eye instruction that really rounds out the description of sonification. And I I think that would be a fascinating citizen science project. I know NASA has grants for just these sorts of things. Offer, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? Yeah, I completely agree with the instructional purpose, because while desonifications provide a way for those with visual impairments to engage with astronomical data that is purely visual, it's also really useful for the sighted public to hear these sonifications and mm. see and hear the stars. And I think this multi-sensory approach is really valuable for interacting with data in a lot of ways for even those that are sighted. So inclusionary and educational. I think it's time we should take a listen to some of these sonifications and give the listeners a good sense of what SDU is all about. To offer, do you want to uh, play some of your favorites? Definitely. I can play the sonification of a type 1 Cepheid variable. And for those that don't know, Cepheids are pulsating giant stars. And because their size changes as they pulsate, their luminosity varies. So the bigger they are, the brighter they are. And we know these specific kind of Cepheids They have a well-defined relationship between their pulsation period and luminosity, which makes them really valuable for calculating distances to faraway galaxies. I'll jump right in and I'll play a Cepheid phased light curve. If you heard that, you could hear the pitch, which corresponds directly to the magnitude of the Cepheid. You can hear it start out high, go low, go back to high, and go down. You're hearing two full phases of the Cepheid light curve. Absolutely. I, I heard that very clearly, and it's, it's immediately clear to me what you mean by very easy to understand. Right? There's not a lot going on, but yet it conveys in, in full complexity what it would look like. And I, I don't need to see it to know what it would look like. 
And every one of those blips is uh, an actual data point. It's an actual measurement mm -hmm. that was made with a telescope, you know, pointed at this uh, Cepheid star. Offer, do you want to play us one more? Definitely. To round it out, I'll play the spectrum of the Cepheid. Perfect. So if you heard in that, the absorption lines can be heard when the sound suddenly gets lower pitch mm -hmm. all of a sudden. And the classical Cepheid is a hot giant, so it begins with the peak in the blue. That's why it was really high at the beginning. And then it gets lower and lower in the red with a few rapid fluctuations, which are the absorption by the calcium and hydrogen atoms in the atmosphere. Very cool. Exactly. So when How... you get used to listening to these, um, you you pay attention to the general overall trend. Is it higher pitched at the beginning and lower pitched towards the end like this one was? That indicates a blue, an overall blue object with more flux at the short wavelengths and less flux at the long wavelengths. And then you also get used to listening for the, sh the short duration changes, which are, as Afra said, the absorption or the emission lines in the spectrum. Absolutely. Those both sounded really excellent. How many sonifications do you have currently on the website? So I would estimate in between 50 and 100. That's a lot. And I know that each of these takes time to assemble. So certainly no small feat in putting this all together. We have made good use of public surveys that have been funded by NASA or funded by the National Science Foundation. A lot of these data are publicly available on the web. Uh, so a lot of what we did was sort of curation, you know, picking okay. interesting examples of interesting kinds of objects. So we, we used imaging data from the uh, assassin project as it's known the all sky automated survey for supernovae we used imaging data from the zwicky transient facility from the catalina sky survey and we used spectra mostly from the sloan digital sky survey it's amazing how much information you can assemble from publicly available surveys Going forward, what are your plans to continue developing SDU? We continue to seek feedback from blind and visually impaired users, from astronomy enthusiasts and novices, and continue to make the website better. We hope to, in addition to the explanations on the website, have lesson plans so that teachers can use these sonifications and these explanations in their classrooms in a way that's easy and prepared for them. Basically, we hope to include and educate those last two purposes. Amazing. I am actually teaching a class this summer for non-major undergrads, and I think I'm going to take a look at those lesson plans and see if when I get to 
stars and, you know, things outside of the galaxy, perhaps I can talk about how sonification works and explain and integrate it. So I will definitely keep my eyes open for that. Is there a feedback form that we can link to for our listeners to try out SDU and then share with you what they think? Absolutely. At the bottom of every page, it gives uh, a contact email for us, but also we have developed a feedback form where people can step through different parts of the website or the whole website if they have enough time and energy. And we're eager to get people's feedback um, on both the accessibility and the pedagogical aspects of it. We will push this out to our listener base and and see what they think about SDU. And I'm, I'm sure you'll get some wonderful feedback, positive and constructive. So is there anything else either of you would like to add before we wrap up? Well, we just want to give a shout out again to the various people that have helped us along the way. Wanda Diaz-Merced and Joe Palmo and Ben Rolston uh, and Karen Phillips and the Sona Uno team, Joanna Casado and Gonzalo de la Vega, uh, as well as Beatriz Garcia, all in Argentina. And we're also super grateful for you, for your interest and for interviewing us today and, and helping us get the word out. It has been absolutely my pleasure. Thank you both for joining us on Astra Soundbites. And I look forward to continuing to explore SDU and probably sharing a number of your sonifications in future episodes. Thank you so much. So if it wasn't abundantly clear from the interview, the fourth I is instruction, teaching or learning through sonification. And Alex and Sabrina, what are your immediate reflections from listening to this interview? Yeah, I had two key takeaways. The first one was I really appreciated the extent to which the SDU team continually got feedback from visually mm. impaired learners as they were developing the tool. Yeah. I feel like a lot of times people say that they will, and then it's just hard to set that up and easier to work on it on your own and then put it out and hope that people will use it. But the fact that it was continually crafted with that feedback in mind, I feel like is going to be really valuable down the line. The second comment that I had was <laughs> it seems very obvious what a sonification is that's used for instruction and what a sonification is that's used primarily for inspiration. Sure. I mean, the sonifications that they played mm -hmm. were not as aesthetic as some of the sonifications that we've played on this episode, but I totally get that it's because it's closer to the data mm -hmm. and making a plot that is more obviously showing the data might be a plot that's less pretty and also less interpretive, right? More direct. Right. And that's probably valuable. Yeah, I agree a lot with what Alex was saying. They went so far as to even check to make sure that they were following the accessibility guidelines on the website itself. Mm. So the people that do have seeing impairments can actually navigate their website relatively easily. I thought that was amazing. I learned a lot about how to make things more accessible. Obviously, I'm sure there's a lot more to learn, but just some of the things I'd never known, for example, that a more complicated website could be harder to navigate for people that are seeing impaired. So that was really interesting. And I actually tried out Sona Uno with some of my research data. So I'm excited to share it with everyone and we'll see uh, how instructive it really can be. Nice. From your own research data. Yes. That's very cool. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, nice. I just wanted to draw one distinction. And, you know, the difference between sort of inclusion and instruction 
sometimes I'm not sure where that line is. And I think inclusion can be non-instructive, right? I think in some ways that the experience of seeing something is not always an educational one. Sometimes it's just an impression. Sometimes it's just beautiful. And the inclusion aspect is giving people sort of the similar experience. So I think in some ways instruction overlaps with inclusion. But there's also a way in which instruction means using sonification to aid a visual component for people who are sighted to be able to have an extra way of integrating the data. So in a sense, there's a piece that goes beyond that. I think that's something that Paul alluded to in the interview as well. Sure. And now I'd like to give a warm welcome to our special guest, Sarah Kane, who's going to be joining us to talk about her experience with sonification and engage in a nice discussion with us. Sarah, welcome to the show. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Thank you so much for having me. Um, yeah, I'm Sarah. I am a fourth year or rising fourth year undergrad at the University of Pennsylvania, where I've done a bit of a smorgasbord of research ranging <laughs> from exoplanets and machine learning all the way to star formation rates in large groups of galaxies called clusters. But currently I am doing an REU at the University of Texas at Austin, where I am looking for low metallicity stars, which are some of the oldest stars in the galaxy. So tell us a little bit about your work. Currently, so my work involves the new data release from Gaia, which is the European Space Agency telescope that has sort of revolutionized our understanding of the galaxy. It has surveyed more stars than any other telescope to date. <laughs> um, it has just given us these vast, vast quantities of data, which is very exciting. But on the other hand, that's quite a lot for a person to go through. Of course. So we are using a type of machine learning algorithm instead to go through uh, a certain type of spectra that Gaia gives us. So we're using machine learning to try to find a shortcut to find these low metallicity stars for us without manually going through, you know, a million stars. What type of machine learning algorithm are you using? Uh, we're using something called UMAP, which is quite similar to TSNE, if you've heard that. It's a type of dimensionality reduction. Mm -hmm. So what it will do is it will take the spectra, which are rather large comparatively, so you can never plot a million spectra all together. It would be a jumbled mess, and also your computer <laughs> wouldn't appreciate it. <laughs> so instead, UMAP will sort of take these spectra, which have a lot of data points, and just narrow them down to two components, an X and a Y. It'll, you can plot those on you know, a plane, and similar spectra should be grouped together, and dissimilar spectra will be far apart. So if you know of one metal poor star, some other potentially metal poor star should be right next to it. So you are kind of throwing out information, but the idea is to throw out the inefficient information just to extract what really helps. Exactly, yeah. You know, spectra are very powerful because they have all that information. Sure. But... Again, it's a little much to handle for one person or even a team of people. So in UMAP, you're trying to find a manifold that preserves the distances between the spectra from the original higher dimensional space in the lower dimensional one, right? I'm wondering how much pre-processing of the data do you have to do before plugging it into a method like that to make sure that the results you get out look reasonable? You definitely have to do a fair bit of pre-processing. I definitely spent okay. 
a not insignificant portion of my summer wrestling with some renormalization and things like that <laughs> to make sure we weren't sure. going to have any problems. Got it. Alex, you lost me at Manifold. <laughs> Sarah, do you want to continue this project when you get back to Penn in the fall or are you going to pick up something else? I would definitely be interested in continuing with this. In fact, I want to continue with this field of galactic astronomy in graduate school, um, wherever I might end up. Um, but also I'll probably be picking up something new because I'm planning to do a senior thesis. So I might be continuing with that smorgasbord trend I have going. <laughs> <laughs> and then after the senior thesis, are there thoughts about grad school? There are a lot of thoughts about grad school. <laughs> uh, some of them quite nervous thoughts. Um, but yes, definitely hoping to start grad school next fall. Definitely sort of compiling a list of schools and fretting sure. about personal statements. Well, if you ever want people to run some ideas by, we've all been through the process and we also know a ton of people who have been through the process. So do reach out. Thank you. Yeah, definitely happy to read any statements that you might have. And you shouldn't fret. Being in an RU, I think, definitely helps in applying to things like that. Thank you. So let's change gears and talk about sonification. How did you first discover sonification and get involved? I mentioned my smorgasbord history. And <laughs> my first ever research project involved using machine learning to look for exoplanets. And we were using a lot of data from TESS, the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite. And I was brand new to research, and I didn't really know how to handle all that astronomical data. So I made a lot of phone calls to the Space Telescope Science Institute's help desk. They were probably quite sick of hearing from me. <laughs> and at one point in the process of looking for the email of someone I had spoken to, Scott Fleming, I noticed on his biography page that he was involved in this project called Astronify, which is a project that is designed to turn time series, so, you know, light versus time data into sound primarily, or at least partially for the purpose of accessibility to people who can't see the data. And I am actually legally blind and have been all my life. So I saw that and my jaw just about hit the floor because it was <laughs> a complete coincidence. And, you know, I emailed Scott Fleming and said, hey, I still need help with the data, but also <laughs> I saw that you work on this project and I would just be really interested to hear more about it because I'm legally blind and he was super welcoming. Yeah, I, I worked as a usability tester for Astronify. It's very exciting. Definitely recommend checking out their website. That is awesome to hear. Yeah, I think we highlighted Astronify a bit in the last sonification episode that we did. And at the time, they were, like you said, super welcoming, super encouraging, and mentioned that anybody listening to the show should reach out if they have any questions sonifying their own data, which was just really cool to see. What was it like being a usability tester? Did you like find some things didn't work right, or was it mostly they were on the right track? They were definitely mostly on the right track. There was a bit of fine-tuning, if I recall correctly, in terms of identifying like the shapes of transits with the sound, just because it was a little hard to hear that level of detail. But I also think it would be hmm. difficult to see that level of detail if you were looking yeah. at a light curve. So 
I think they were doing a great job. Honestly, from my end, it was a lot of fun. I felt like I was getting to play around with data in a way that I had never experienced it before. And in the process, I was meeting some really cool people who were working on the project. Nice. What kind of data sets did you explore as a design tester? You mentioned transits. What kind of other things did you look at? Primarily, we were looking at exoplanet transits, but we definitely listened to some eclipsing binaries as well, and I believe some stellar flares as well. Very cool. That's awesome. Sarah, do you imagine ever using uh, Astronify for your actual own research? Like, did you ever put your research data in and listen? I definitely put my research in to, uh, to listen to it at least, which was very enjoyable. I think I would definitely be interested in using Astronify for research, though I don't really do exoplanets anymore or anything mm-hmm. involving light curves. I think there are some other things that would need to change, not with Astronify, but mm-hmm. outside factors. A lot of uh, programming sort of setups just aren't super accessible by something called screen readers, which are literally software that read what's on your computer screen, you know, to make a computer accessible to blind people. And things like Jupyter Notebooks and things like that, things that most astronomers tend to use for research, don't tend to be particularly screen reader friendly. And so it sometimes doesn't make sense to have your data turned into sound when your code itself can't be turned into sound. So some progress to be made in other areas first. Interesting. Wow. Yeah, that's really insightful. I had never thought about that before, that all of the tools along the way to building the sonification have to be accessible in the same way that the final product needs to be accessible. So you mentioned screen readers. What other tools do you use for accessibility? So I used to be a screen reader user um, pretty exclusively. And then when I started programming, I found that that was not particularly feasible. It, It required some pretty serious workarounds to code with a screen reader. So I've switched to just plain old screen magnification, which works. I have a little bit of remaining vision. So if I blow up my screen obnoxiously large and sort of shove my entire face into it, I can see it. So as far as, you know, using a computer, that's, those are my main accessibility sort of tools. A lot of the other things I use just involve daily living and probably aren't quite as exciting for an astro audience, but things like my ever wonderful seeing eye dog, things like that definitely make life easier. You mentioned that you have some vision, so you are able to change your screen to be able to make use of that. Yes. So um, a big misconception by most people is that to be blind, you just don't see anything. And that's generally not the case. Only about 10 to 15 percent of blind people see nothing. And the others, like me, have varying degrees of remaining vision. In the United mm. States, we have a, an act, like a literal legal cutoff at which point someone is considered legally blind. So you'll find a lot of blind people uh, who can still see you know, anything ranging from just lights and shadows to people like me who can read very large print if it's close to their face. Interesting. I wanted to ask, how did you first get into astronomy? And when you did, presumably taking classes and things like that, did you feel that the field was open to you as someone who's visually impaired? Great question. 
So how did I first get into astronomy is a little embarrassing. No, not embarrassing. I <laughs> I love Star Trek. I've always loved Star Trek. Okay, sure. <laughs> I started watching it when I was probably about eight. And by the time I was in seventh or eighth grade, I was just like, yes, have to do this for the rest of my life. <laughs> so thank you, Mr. Spock. <laughs> um, <laughs> as far as when I actually started taking classes, especially at the undergraduate level, I have been very fortunate that every professor I've ever worked with or had classes with at Penn has been incredibly welcoming and encouraging and happy to make accommodations. That doesn't change the fact that there are accommodations to be made. Um, astronomy is not a field that is inherently built for blind people. There aren't many things in the world that are built for blind people. So it can be challenging and because there aren't many blind people in astronomy as you might imagine it can also be isolating sometimes i don't think that's the fault of anyone like i said everyone i've ever met has been just so welcoming about it but you know if the field is to be made accessible there is probably some work to be done sure you mentioned accommodations did you feel that the instruction of the teachers in the class that you had was innately accessible for someone who was visually impaired or were there additional, you mentioned accommodations, um, pieces, I guess, that needed to be integrated in to make it more accessible? I wouldn't say they're innately accessible. Uh, <laughs> I think physics classes tend to be built on the structure of the professor writes on the board and you frantically write down everything they've written. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yep. There's simply no world in which I can see a blackboard or whiteboard even sitting from the very front row. Um, I would have to be standing over the professor's shoulder, which no one would appreciate. That would be terrible. But fortunately, as far as other assistive technology goes, there are devices that basically act as cameras where you point the camera at the board and you can project basically what the camera sees onto your laptop screen or some other screen. And from there, it's closer to you and you can also magnify it as large as you'd like. And frankly, I found those to be pretty no fuss. So innately accessible, no. Difficult to make accessible, also no. Okay, that's pretty good. Yeah, that's good to know. In terms of sonification of lectures and learning astronomy, do you feel like there are any really good tools to use to study astronomy in that way? I know you mentioned the camera, but like in terms of sonifying the information that you're getting. So a lot of sonifications these days, at least in my experience, are built from an educational perspective. So a lot of sonifications are built um, with the intention of teaching people, maybe not necessarily for researchers, but because they help expose the general public, including blind people in the general public, to these ideas in astronomy. As of right now, I don't know of any that are completely compatible with the way most physics classes are taught. Um, again, just because of the typical format of a professor writing on the board, if it's not digital, it's going to be pretty difficult to sonify it. Right. Yeah, so you mentioned that most sonifications in your experience now are being built for education. Do you see that as sort of just you know, giving people the experience of astronomy? Or do you mean education in the sense of like being able to, to really learn new information? I would say somewhere at the intersection of the two, and it certainly varies by project. 
I would say that most sonifications have a public outreach bent where they are exposing people maybe for the first time to astronomy, especially blind people who might never have had a way to interact with astronomy data before because it's typically so visual. Right. But just because it has sort of this outreach bent doesn't mean that people aren't learning valuable new information. In fact, they certainly are. There's, you know, a ton of, you know, relatively high level information that you can get from sonifications if you just dig deep enough. That connects nicely with the interview that we had earlier in the show, talking with the creators of Sensing the Dynamic Universe. And in their project, I was kind of surprised at how simple their sonifications are. It makes perfect sense to me now because simple means you can understand the information. It sounds like what you're saying, there are ways of doing sonification to present the full complexity too. Yeah, definitely. It all comes down to what your goals are. So for instance, thinking about sensing the dynamic universe, I'm thinking about, for instance, their spectra right now. As it is, you can hear absorption lines and things like that in the spectra. Um, you can hear that they're present, but because there's no audio cue of what wavelength you're listening to, you don't know where they are. Interesting. Okay. And so from a deeper level, as someone who works with spectra, absorption lines aren't helpful to me unless I know where they are. But, you know, that's a relatively easy thing to add. So it would increase the complexity of what you're listening to and maybe not be super helpful to someone who's just learning what a spectrum is. But, you know, there are always varying levels of complexity you can add. So that's a phenomenal point, because that was exactly the realization that I had listening to the spectrum that they played was, I don't know where it starts in wavelength or frequency, and I don't know where it ends. Yeah. So I know the general shape of it. I can't like anchor myself anywhere. And the like the plot axes, if I'm looking at a plot, do that for me. And I wanted to know if there was any audio counterpart to the axes of a visual plot? That's a great question. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think, you know, if we're thinking about looking at astronomy papers on the archive or something like that, you would never look at a plot without looking at the axes. Right. Whereas if you're looking at something purely educationally, you might just look at the nice pretty plot. So again, I think it's all going to come down to what your goals are. If your goal is to just teach someone what a spectrum is, who's never been able to see a spectrum before, then listening to the general shape and getting an idea for what's going on might be enough. Whereas if you're making it for researchers, yeah, we're going to want to find a way to integrate the axes. So broadening the discussion a little bit, you've listened to a bunch of the uh, SDU sonifications and explored their website? Yes. Is your overall impression positive based on you know their intended goal? Definitely. I think it's lovely. It's really well laid out. They provide a lot of great information, not only in the sonifications, but as nice little captions. And I think the sonifications are also musically pleasing, which is always a nice touch. Excellent. It's all running on the back end of Sono Uno, which has been in development for a long time. Sono Uno was a project developed by Wanda Diaz-Merced, who is sort of a leading figure in the sonification world and was developed, I think, over like a decade continuously. And so all of the SDU sonifications are built from that software. And I think they've just done a really great job making it sound good while also representing the data accurately. Yes, I definitely agree. Yeah. 
Interesting, though, that there are some areas maybe in the Spectra that they could improve. Paul did mention in the interview that they've never really seen Spectra sonified like this. So maybe, you know, that's something they can think about. They, they're they just pioneers in that area. I also wonder if reading the plot axes beforehand, before playing it, would be helpful at all. Like, explicitly reading that out. Like, frequency corresponds to this power measurement. This is a time series data. I don't know what you think about that, Sarah. I think it would come down to some testing to see just what works better, you know, what order the information is presented in and how. Um, and that's a great way to pull, you know, some blind, visually impaired people in as well for testing. Yeah. I'd also imagine it might be a little difficult because if you only say you're reading the horizontal axis of a plot, you read the left tick and then you sonify the data and then you read the right tick you didn't know what the scale was of the sonified data until the very end. So I wonder if there's some, like, I don't know, basic description at the beginning of, like, where it starts, where it ends, what increments are. You probably have a better sense for that, Sarah. I'm even thinking about, instead of having it right at the end, maybe periodically having it read off a sort of tick marker, you know, maybe, I don't know. I guess it would come down to what scale we're working on, how often you'd want the tick read out. And maybe in a very different sort of voice that's distinct from the sonification, so it wouldn't distract. Again, this would come down to some fiddling around with it a bit, but that could be a possibility. I like that idea. Sarah, do you have any recommendations or advice for other undergraduates who are interested in getting involved with either research in the more traditional sense or in sonification work? Research, I would say getting involved in research is a game of mixed enthusiasm and persistence. (laughs) If you're an undergrad and want to get involved in research, start emailing professors, Um, you know, lay out what you want to do and why you think their work is interesting. And hope that they answer you and they might not and that's okay that's kind of part of the game that's where the persistence comes in but if you email enough people someone's gonna take an interest as far as preparing yourself to be an appealing candidate to get involved in research i would say learning to program especially in python is going to be the best thing you can do to set yourself up to do research as far as sonifications go That's almost a little bit more difficult since I I seem to have fallen into the world of sonifications almost by accident. (laughs) But a lot of sonification projects these days tend to have websites and things like that. So I imagine if you do some Googling and then play that same game of just being brave and emailing people, eventually you're going to get a few bites on that line. And then, you know... You have more intentionally stumbled into the world of sonification. That was such an empathetic and compassionate way to describe, like, professors not replying to you <laughs> when you're asking for research. I just, it, it just made me feel so much better for all the times no one's responded to me, so thank you. <laughs> Clearly you're involved with research, you're involved with sonification work. You have the persistence to follow up with people with emails if they're not responding to you. So it seems like it's worked out. That's awesome. Persistence, stubbornness, two sides of the same coin. (laughs) (laughs) They can both get you uh, where you need to go in research. That's what matters. It's very true. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. This was a really fun discussion, and we will definitely have you back on to do a deep dive into your research on an episode that's themed a little bit closer to what you do. 
Thank you so much, Sarah. Yeah, really enjoyed this episode and hearing all about your work and your experience with sonifications and tools. So thank you. It was wonderful to meet you and good luck wrapping up your REU program and starting everything again in the fall. Thank you so much for having me. I had a great time meeting and talking with all of you. In the spirit of instruction, of education, we're going to each spend a couple minutes teaching and learning a concept using sonification as the primary medium. And podcasting is great for this because no matter how hard we try, we cannot see exactly what we're listening to. So that makes this segment our bi-weekly super surprise and strategically simple space sound for education. Alex, do you want to lead us off with the sonification? Yeah, I'd love to. The sonification that I made is using data consolidated and released by the Time Domain Research Group at Harvard University. And the data is associated with the kilonova, the one kilonova that we've discovered to date, associated with gravitational wave 170817. So a tiny bit of background, a kilonova is the electromagnetic emission that occurs when two neutron stars collide. A bunch of neutron-rich material is spewn out in this collision. It's a messy collision, depending on the parameters of the neutron star. And all this neutron-rich material lying around then very quickly starts this process of making heavier and heavier elements. So this is called R-process nucleosynthesis, and the kilonova that we observed confirmed that this is the site where heavy elements are produced. I think this is so cool that in the last five years, an entire new mechanism for generating elements has been discovered. I mean, prior to this, we didn't know where a lot of the elements came from, and we assumed they came from only supernovae. So I think this is wild. I'm just so intrigued by kilonovae. Neutron-rich material spewn out really caught my attention, because when we think about neutron stars being so dense... It's just insane thinking about the ejecta of neutron stars. I don't know. That is amazing to me. It is wild to think about. Yeah. And the reason why I mention the heavy metals is because heavy metals block a lot of light at a lot of different frequencies. And so the light that comes out in the kilonova emission ends up being pretty red. Hmm. And so when the kilonova was observed, there was a question of how much red versus blue light you're seeing in the emission. And there were multiple models that were proposed for it. And the sonification that I made is the best fit model of the kilonova, assuming a certain amount of metals for the red component of the light curve that was observed. All right. Looking forward to hearing it. So without further ado. A little more ado, maybe three or four days. (laughs) All right. With minimal ado. Sounds like a set transition from Phantom of the Opera. Like while they're transitioning, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I should mention these are sonified best fit light curves in GRIZ passbands from Dark Energy Camera. And I sonified G, R, and Z in harp and I in violin. 
So the thinking here is that over time it gets redder. So the intensity in I decreases more slowly than the observations in the other passbands, which means that it is drawn out from the noise from the harp more easily, and you end up hearing the violin more prominently in the sonification at late times. Ah, okay, so viol more violin means redder. That's, that's right, yeah. Yeah, so this was really awesome. So what did you use to actually sonify this? What did I use to sonify? It uh, is a project called Two-Tone, which runs through an online app. And uh, it's very easy to just load up a CSV file and process the columns uh, and sonify them immediately with different Ooh. instruments and make it pretty aesthetically pleasing. I actually added <laughs> some arpeggios in this one, so it made it a little more aesthetically pleasing. And maybe that's cheating a little yeah. bit for the instructional piece of this, but uh, I had a hard time not doing anything because it sounded a little screechy at the start. Well, thank you so much for bringing that sonification. For sure. Kilanove become redder over time. So that's something I learned, and the learning was enhanced through sonification. I think it's your turn, Sabrina. Sure. I guess Alex cheated a bit by adding in arpeggios. <laughs> I did not do that. <laughs> uh, and mine does not sound as beautiful. I actually used Sono Uno to sonify this data. SDU's new website that can take basically 2D data, from my understanding, and sonify it into a somewhat more readily instructive, audible version of your data. So this is my research data, actually. So I talked about this in a previous Astro Soundbite, but I was taking some data at the Dominion Radio Astrophysical Observatory in Western Canada. We we're taking data on the six meter radio telescope dish that is the pathfinder for an upcoming radio interferometer in Canada called the Canadian Hydrogen Observatory and Radio Transient Detector. So Alex talked about transients, but this will be a radio transient detector. So we need to understand the beam of the dish really well to be able to extract meaningful information about the very early universe. So these super, super faint signals and the actual beam where it's like a power response of the dish depends on where the signals actually reflect back into what's called the feed or like what's actually taking in data from the voltages that are corresponding to the radio waves hitting the instrument. I'm going to now play my sonification of the beam response at basically one of the global positioning satellites frequencies. So it's 1575 megahertz. Does that make any sense <laughs> at all? I need the sonification to fully understand. I'm still processing, but the sonification, <laughs> yeah. Sonification should definitely help. So this is the instrument's response as a function of? Frequency. Basically what was happening is as you were hearing a higher and higher frequency, that corresponded to a higher power that the telescope was receiving. And then the time axis, or as you're hearing it in time, is the angular separation from the power response and the center of the beam. So you would expect that signals that are right over the center of the telescope dish would have the highest beam response. You'd be able to see them the best. Mm. But as you move out further to the side lobes, you don't see it as well. It's actually a diffraction pattern, fundamentally. Dishes, light diffracts around the dish. 
Oh, so that's why it had like the little bump and then it went up to the big bump. Yeah. Fundamentally, it is a diffraction pattern, but a lot of times we stop thinking about that in radio astronomy. So I think that came across really well and I could totally hear the first peak and then a much higher second peak. I couldn't really hear it on the other side as well, but on the beginning side, I definitely heard it. There's less variation in the power on the towards the end of the sonification, so I think that makes sense. So I wanted to ask, the each like blip that we heard, each one of those is an actual observation? Yeah, it's a measurement of a GPS satellite. So a GPS satellite beaming down, right? We use those to localize ourselves on Earth. It's a measurement of it as it transits the center of the beam, basically. Got it, okay. So I should mention that for two-tone, there's no sense of time scale. So I actually had to interpolate the GRIZ light curves onto a common grid and play them because each point is just played at a fixed interval in time, regardless of the actual time interval at which the observations were taken. So that's, I think, a big limitation of two-tone. Yes, if you had missing data, Sano Uno would have had gaps, where I think in two-tone, it would just compress it all and remove any gaps. So in that sense, Sano Uno does a better job reproducing the data accurately. That's right. Yeah. You can also set it to be continuous, I think, if you have gaps for whatever reason in your data. There's a lot of different functions I didn't explore too much, but it was really easy once you got your data in like two columns anything nice yeah very cool and i i do think you did a better job at the instructional piece of it i could really hear like the raw data itself from the sonification i think that was very effective thanks for listening everyone thanks for introducing it will last but not least can you show us your sonification we're excited to hear it i've also decided to sonify something in my actual research I don't want to go into the full detail about what my research is, but one of the things that I'm working on is trying to compare some data to a model, where in this case, the data is observations of Uranus's atmosphere during a stellar occultation, which is what I study. And I've talked about it in the past. I don't want to get into the full details right now, but observations of Uranus during a stellar occultation And the other is a simulation of what the observations would look like if Uranus's atmosphere had the temperatures that the Voyager 2 spacecraft found. And my question is, do the simulated observations match the real observations? And so what I've done with my sonification is I have four comparisons, two actual observations and two simulated observations. So there are four channels. I've assigned them to different instruments in an orchestra, some strings, some brass. And the idea is to map the pitch to the difference. So when the pitch increases, it indicates a greater difference. And that's the idea that you you hear the pitch go up in one or more of these channels that would indicate an actual difference that you see. And well, I'll let you listen to it and then see what you think.
both of your sonifications sound like classical music pieces? Yeah, Will, I think yours was the most aesthetically pleasing of them all. It sounded like a fanfare. I spent a lot of time working on this, and I made the sonification using the program MIDI time, which is super simple, bare bones. You have to basically tell it, hold this note for this number of beats and use the notes from this scale. And then I put it into GarageBand and I assigned the instruments I wanted to and made it sound pretty. But I hope you get an audio impression of what I see when I look at this data. Because to my eye, it looks unmistakable that these do not agree that the data and the model are starkly different. Hmm. And that's not a like statistical answer. I can't publish that. I have to d- come up with the right statistical tests, which it turns out has been a greater challenge because there's a lot of noise and the noise isn't consistent. So a lot of statistical tests go out the window right there. And I'm working on that and it's it's been making some good progress actually. But I wanted to give an audio representation that gives sort of an unmistakable rise in pitch so that you would listen to that and say, I agree. If I could see it, I would agree as well. I think I got that. So the model and the actual data were in there. That's correct, right? The only thing you were hearing is the difference. Okay. Data minus model. Okay, yeah. I could hear the, I don't know if you want to call it like dissonance, but it obviously was very different. The data was very different from what you were fitting, which I guess is very common in astronomy. But I think that represented it really well, actually. Like the residuals, basically, is what you were hearing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I don't want them to agree, though I'm not supposed to have a (laughs) horse in this race, but I'm happy they disagree, I'll say that. Yeah, that's really interesting. I definitely got the increasing pitch and that the residuals were, were high, that the model was not great for the data. I wonder if it would become a more, like, intuitive understanding if the if the sound was harsher, maybe like, yeah. like it sounds so pretty. It almost makes me think there's like <laughs> a chord agreement. You know what I mean? Like everything's sure. harmonious, but if it like really was like shrieky and, and ugly, I'd be like, Oh man, this is something's wrong, which is the truth, right? Something is wrong. Um, wrong may not be the right way of phrasing it, but different in an important way. Yes. And one of my peers had the cool idea of, making it more dissonant to show that there's a difference. And you can do that by taking really large ratios of the pitches. So a a nice sounding pitch might be three to one or four to one or five to three. A terrible sounding pitch is like a thousand to 999 or something like that. We hear that as dissonance. That doesn't sound good. The problem is the software I was using is not capable of dialing exact frequencies. It's limited to actual notes. So that didn't work as well. But there's my sonification. That's a great sonification. It was really great. I guess you could like untune your instruments, like just offset them a little bit and then try it, I don't know, to create that dissonance effect. But I guess you can't do that Hmm. in GarageBand. The next time your band performs this, uh, Will, make sure you're a little bit out of key. You just mess up the tuning of it, you know? <laughs> this one's for all the astrophysicists in the audience. <laughs> Sing along if you know it. And with that, it's time for us to do our one-sentence summaries. Alex, you want to lead us off? Sure. Not only is time domain astrophysics super cool, but it provides ideal data sets for exploring sonification and increasing the accessibility of astronomical lessons.
Sabrina, what do you got for us? Yeah. So downloading and using Sano Uno was straightforward with 2D data that I took right off a research poster that I made last week. I'm really excited to try and sonify more radio astronomy related data in the future. What about you, Will? I was inspired to incorporate sonification in my teaching. So today I actually used SDU to teach my Astronomy 102 undergrad students about variables. That's so cool. How did it go? Thanks. (laughs) It was great. It took up a whole half hour that I didn't have to lecture. (laughs) Nice. No, that's terrible. (laughs) I I think it did go well. I think they enjoyed the break from the format. It's a two-hour lecture every day in the summer. And so having some things to break it up has been really nice for them. And I think they got something out of it, appreciating it, even if they didn't learn a ton. I bet they learned a lot. Yeah. And another way to say that is you just let the data speak for itself. (laughs) (laughs) And on that note, we will conclude episode 60 of Astra Soundbites. An Ear for Instruction, Sonification, Part (laughs) 2. So was the sequel better than the original? I think so. Jury's still out. See what box office sales look like. Mm. So we're going to link in our show notes to Sensing the Dynamic Universe. We'll link to Sarah's social media and a nice article about her, the Astrobite we wrote last year, and some of the resources we talked about today. Do you feel more educated now? Because it doesn't stop here. You can go back and listen to all our past episodes. They all have a little sonification. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, SoundCloud, Audible, and Amazon Music. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. Bye.